0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 14. Last week, I covered a few of the better-known places in Numbers, such as Kadesh and Dabon, along with several lesser-known ones. This week, I'm continuing to work through the places in Numbers, beginning with the legendary city of Petra, and continuing with Jazer and Kinnath. And with that, let's get started. I wrapped up the last episode with the place known as Kadesh, at least the one found in the Book of Numbers. Recall that several historic figures, including Josephus himself, thought that Kadesh was Petra. This ancient city is the former capital of the once great Nabataean Kingdom. The kingdom peaked between the 4th century BC and the early 2nd century AD, meaning they were flourishing just south of Jerusalem when Jesus walked in the region. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The first people settled in the area that would become Petra in the 10th century BC. In this area, which is now southern Jordan, it lies in a basin on the eastern slope of the Jebal El-Madah mountain in the Araba Valley. Some researchers think that this mountain is the biblical Mount Sinai, but that's a different story for a different day. This places Petra between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba, which is at the northern end of the Red Sea. For ages, it was known as Rakhmu, just in case you see that word in some sources. Then, sometime around 2000 BC, so before Abraham, apparently farmers settled in the area, in the region just to the north of Petra. Do note that the climate is thought to have been a bit cooler and wetter in this period, like I touched on in Egyptian history. Speaking of Egypt, the city was listed in Egyptian campaign accounts, along with the Armana letters. In these cases, it was referred to as either Pale, Sela, or Seir. Later, Josephus would claim it was part of the Midianite kingdom, on his timeline, beginning around 1340 BC. He provided more detail, actually naming five kings and other tidbits. To quote a translation of his writing, Recom, the city which bears his name, ranks highest in the land of Arabs, and to this day is called by the whole Arabian nation, after the name of its royal founder, Recomi, called Petra by the Greeks. Backing up a bit, the city would be settled by the Nabataeans, They started out as one group among nomadic Bedouin tribes that traveled the Arabian Desert. They were primarily herders, moving with their herds to wherever they could find pasture and water. Over time, the theory is that they would become familiar with the area around Petra. Like most in the area, as we saw throughout Genesis, when the rain didn't fall, there was a literal fight for survival. Due to its central location, it became a trading center. This was about the only way any civilization in this region could become prosperous. The climate was, well, is, semi-arid at best, with only about 8 inches of rain falling per year. So, profiting from agriculture was off the table. But the geography did offer a few distinct advantages the people would establish an economic center and a canyon, which enclosed the city in essentially a natural fortress. The routes leading to the city are as varied as the geography. From the south, so the Persian Gulf and Red Sea, along with Arabia, caravans would cross what's known as the Plain of Petra, essentially a flat approach that yields an impressive view of the city as a traveler gets close. From the north, they would cross a high plateau, which is flat too. The route from the east was the most challenging. And this was fortuitous as several powerful empires lay east. The Babylonians, then the Persians, among others. To get the Petra from there required an approach that leads steeply down a dark, narrow gorge. So narrow that in places it's only ten feet, about three meters wide, In just under a mile, or slightly more than a kilometer long. This passage was carved by the Wadai Musa, which I'll get to in a minute. It's at the end of this passage that's found the so-called treasury building. It's not actually a treasury building, but instead it's believed to be the mausoleum of Nabataean king Eratus IV, from the 1st century AD. You'd recognize it if you saw it, as it's been featured in many films, including the third installment of Indiana Jones. This building, along with many others, was carved directly into the relatively soft red sandstone cliff. And it's from this red sandstone that the city earned its nickname, the Rose City. The sandstone is so soft that it currently bears many bullet holes from the recent assaults by local Bedouins, thinking they could shoot their way to hidden riches. No word on their success. Not far from the Treasury at the foot of the mountain is an enormous amphitheater. It appears that the theater was built after several of the tombs were placed there, as it was cut into the sandstone tombs during its construction. The theater is surrounded on almost three sides by sandstone cliffs and other rock formations. But, the physical geography wasn't the only advantage afforded to the area. There was also a stream that brought water to the inhabitants. A stream that flowed with enough water that the people were able to create an artificial oasis. Of course, there is a downside to locating near a stream in the desert. And that is, when the rain does eventually fall, there are flash floods. Those of you from Arizona, and the surrounding states are far too familiar with this concept. Archaeological excavations have uncovered that the Nabataeans were able to control the water supply, and not just the normal flow. They were also able to control these flash floods by the use of dams, cisterns, and aqueducts, and the ability to, when needed, divert water away. So, when there was not enough, they were able to store it. And when there was too much, they could divert it. A great technology to have when you live in an area that's feast or famine, at least hydrologically. There's even a contingent of archaeologists who believe that the city had carved channels deep within the walls and ground that held ceramic pipes that once fed water for the city. A true water distribution system. Local legend holds that the water system was created by the Rod of Moses, when he struck the rock to bring forth water for the Israelites. And, this story did have some basis, at least in Arab tradition. According to this tradition, it was Petra, not neither Massa, nor Meribah, where Moses struck a rock with his staff and water poured out. Also, the same tradition holds that Aaron is buried nearby on Jabal Harun, a.k.a. Mount Aaron. Also, the Wadai Musa, literally translates to the eye of Moses. So, the stream of Moses flows through Petra, through much of the rock. Petra was at the crossroads of trade routes that ran from the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Mediterranean, and all of the kingdoms and empires that bordered these. While these routes did not pass directly through the canyon, they were close enough that the Nabataeans exercised control. It was here that nomadic Arabs would trade with the Egyptians from the southwest, and Assyrians, Israelites, and eventually Romans, all from the north. The Nabataeans started out as nomadic Arabs, many of whom settled in the area around Petra, and then developed trading relationships with all of these neighbors. It was this trade that awarded the Nabataeans with considerable revenue, and with the revenue came the wealth which was then invested and stored in Petra. The earliest historic reference, at least so far, and if you don't consider the Kadesh possibility. Anyway, the earliest historic reference to Petra was an unsuccessful attack on the city by Antagonist I in 312 BC. This attack was recorded by various Greek historians. Antagonists thinking back to all the episodes on Egyptian history, He was one of Alexander the Great's generals. Of course, there will be much more on this part of the history of the region at some point in the future. This attack, like many that followed, was repelled, mostly due to the geography of the city. That and the Nabataeans were accustomed to fighting in the inhospitable climate of the area. Throughout their era, the Nabataeans worshipped Arab deities along with a couple of their deified kings. Many statues depicting these kings were carved in the sandstone. There were also Edomite influences in their religion. Overall, their religion had a link with both the earth and the sun, as seen by the orientation of prominent Petra structures to equinox and solstice sunrises and sunsets, similar to what is seen in many ancient religions, including Egypt and even the Neolithic Stonehenge. Of course, after the Greeks came the Romans. and the city, well, the entire Nabataean kingdom became a client state of the Romans in the first century BC. This meant they had to pay tributes and provide soldiers to the Romans. Over the next couple of hundred years, the city would grow, peaking with about 20,000 residents in the first century AD. It would remain at least semi-independent for the next couple of hundred years until 106 AD. At this time, Roman Emperor Trajan was preparing for war against the Parthians. One of the many facets of the preparation was to order the governor of the neighboring province, Syria, to subdue the area around Petra. The governor, Palma, did, annexing Petra to be officially part of the empire, all without a fight. When they did this, they renamed the new province, Arab Patria, and Petra was named as the capital. And with that, the Nabataean rule evaporated, but the city continued to thrive, at least for a short while. The Romans would build the Petra Road, entering the city through its great gates. A century later, when Alexander Severus was emperor, the city reached its peak and ceased issuing money. A rather curious thing to happen in a trading center... At the same time, tombs stopped being carved out of sandstone. All of this leads researchers to believe that there may have been an invasion, potentially from the neighboring Neo-Persians, part of the Sassanid Empire. About the same time, Palmyra to the north, in Syria, began to become a more important trading destination, partially owing to being located closer to Rome and Constantinople. It wasn't just this competing land trade center that led to the decline. With better ships and navigation, the reliance on land trade gave way to seafarers. Then, in 363 AD, an earthquake wreaked havoc and destroyed many structures and much of the water transport infrastructure. But the city remained inhabited. Christianity would finally make it to Petra in the 4th century AD and it was firmly established as several churches were built, and a bishop was seated there. One of the men serving in the role of bishop at this time was named Jason, and his name, along with the title, were found inscribed on some of the ruins. At that time, there was still a mountaintop shrine of Moses' sister Miriam, but the location of this monument has been lost to time, to the point that during Byzantine rule, it was a province of Palestinia, and several churches were built in and around the city. In one of these churches, 140 papyri were discovered. These were mostly commercial contracts and were likely written between 537 and 593 AD. This is thought to show that the city was still thriving at that time. After this, the city would become a somewhat viable economic center until the rise of the Islamist, when it was finally almost fully abandoned, save for a few semi-nomadic residents. After the rise of Islam in the city, there were no Christians left. Then came the Crusaders. During the First Crusade, Petra was occupied by Baldwin I of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. In the 12th century, the Crusaders built two castles in the general area, with one in Petra itself control of these castles would go back and forth between the crusaders and the Islamists, but the city itself appears to have remained in the hands of the Franks until 1189, testament of how easy it was to defend the unique geography. Other than some local and regional visitors, the city was forgotten about, especially by the western world until it was rediscovered in 1812 by the Swiss traveling geographer Johann Ludwig Burckhardt. Up until that point, most from the era, and back some ways, considered the city of Kurak to be the ancient city of Petra, and therefore a candidate for Kadesh. Kurak is in Jordan, to the east of the Dead Sea, and not terribly far from Petra. Later, in the 19th century, Scottish painter David Roberts visited Petra, returning to Great Britain with both sketches and stories of his encounters with the local Bedouin tribes. All of this sparking Western interest in this lost, legendary city. Now for something a wee bit interesting. A stele dedicated to their deity Kus' Allah was found in the city. Kus is thought to be connected with the Edomite deity Kosh, The stele itself has horns and the seal from the Edomite Tualan, which was located near Petra. It also has a star and crescent. Nabataean inscriptions in Sinai, and also found in other places, display widespread references to names including Allah, along with other regional deities. There are even inscriptions that read Shalom Lahi, which translates to Allah is Peace, Now the interesting part. All of these date to well before Muhammad's founding of Islam. Of course, it could be mere coincidence. But there are some that point to Petra as the original Mecca. Those that support this theory claim that many of the first mosques faced Petra, not Mecca. This, though, may simply be the result of the builders of these mosques not having a firm grasp on geographic directions. And, to be clear, all of this is a very minority view, but interesting nonetheless. And that's it for Petra. Next on the list of places to cover is Jazer. In Numbers 21, we see that Moses sent spies to the city. After this, the Israelites captured its villages and either drove off or pillaged the Amorites who lived there. Jazer was a city east of the Jordan River, in the area of Gilead. Obviously, before the arrival of the Israelites, it had been inhabited by the Amorites. The Septuagint reads that Jazer may have been on the border between the Amorites and the Ammonites. It appears to have been a significant city, or maybe a region, as some translations render Jeremiah 48 as referring to the Sea of Jazer. The thought is, if an inland sea is named after a specific city, the city must be important. Other parts of the Old Testament tell us that Jazer had prime grazing land, along with vineyards and four towns. The four towns lend credence to it being a region. It would be occupied by the tribe of Gad, though one of the towns within it was given to the Merarite Levites. Later, when David was king, parts of Jazer would be occupied by Kohath's descendants, the Hebronites. Also during David's rule, It was a place from which his administration would conduct a census. Josephus recorded that Jazer was captured and raised by Judas Maccabeus. Later, Eusebius and Jerome would identify it as being between 8 and 10 miles west of Philadelphia, 15 miles north of Heshbon, and as the source of a large river falling into the Jordan. And I think this is the first time I've mentioned a Roman mile. It was 1,000 paces, but not the paces you're likely thinking of. While walking, it was the distance covered after the left foot hit the ground 1,000 times. Of course, this distance varied depending on who was taking the steps, along with the type of terrain and various other variables. Overall, a Roman mile is about 10% shorter than a statute mile, or 1.5 kilometers. So... Eight Roman miles would be close to seven and a half statute miles or 12 kilometers. Back to Jazer, if just for a second more. Some modern scholars have identified Jazer with the modern town of Kurbatsar in western Jordan. And that's it for Jazer. The last place I'll cover this week is Kennath, mentioned in numbers 32. From the context. It's thought to be on the east bank of the Jordan River. Kinath and its satellite villages were conquered by Noba, a descendant of Manasseh. After Nobah conquered the city, he renamed it after himself. It likely kept this name for a few hundred years, though later Pliny and Jerome would refer to the town as Kenatha. Modernly, the town is known as Kenawat. This place no matter which name you choose, is currently a village in Syria. Most people living there today are Druze. The Druze hold Jethro of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, in high regard, considering him to be the founder of their society. The group's religion is a mixture of Gnosticism, Neoplatism, Pythagoreanism, and considered by some to be an offshoot of Shia Islam. Enough about them. For now, Kanawat is one of the oldest cities in the region. It was possibly mentioned in ancient Egyptian documents dating to the 20th century BC. It may also be in Amarna letters from the 14th century BC. The reason I say may is that these documents refer to specific towns in the general area, but give different names. Other than in numbers, it gets a single mention in First Chronicles, we're told that Gesher and Aram took the towns of Havath-Jer, Kinnath, and its villages, in all 60 towns. The natural conclusion is that if 60 towns were taken, but only two were specifically named, the two that were named likely were the most significant in the region. It was here that the Nabataean Arab forces defeated a Jewish army, and the city would be hotly contested for some time after that. Fast forward a few centuries, and the town was Greek, then Roman. From the time of the rule of the Roman Pompey the Great, around 100 BC, to Trajan, around 100 AD, it was considered a city of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a group of ten cities on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, in the southeastern Levant, in the first centuries BC and AD. They formed a group because of their language, culture, location, and political status, with each functioning as an autonomous city-state, but still dependent on Rome. They are sometimes described as a league of cities, although some scholars believe that they were never formally organized as a political unit. Other cities in this group included Damascus, Philadelphia, now known as Amman, Scythopolis, a.k.a. Shean in Israel, the only such city west of the Jordan River, more on the Decapolis at a later date. By the time of Herod, so right in the middle of this period, the town was going by the name Kanatha. In the first century AD, it was annexed to the Roman province of Syria, and in the second century, it was renamed Septimia Canatha. At that time, it was made part of the province of Arabia. Later, Christianity took a foothold in the city, and it would become a seat of a bishop. In 637, it was captured by the Islamists, and over the course of 300 years went through a substantial economic decline. This decline would apparently continue through Ottoman control of the city, as late 16th century tax records indicate only 12 Muslim and 5 Christian households. Included in this was a group of settled Bedouins. The decline would continue to the point that the city was completely abandoned between the 17th and 18th centuries. Then, in the early 19th centuries, a community of Druze took up residence, migrating there from southern Lebanon. They would begin to live in many of the stone residences that still stood from the centuries earlier occupation. It also helped that the roads, aqueduct, and amphitheater were still standing unusable. Not to be forgotten, but a temple-turned-4th-century Christian church was still there. In fact, today, most of these are still used to one degree or another. In total, when the Druze arrived, there were only five to six families. Further Druze migration would occur later in the 19th century as a result of a Lebanese civil war. Fostering the increase in Druze population was that the city began to be viewed as a religious, and political center for that religion. And that's it for Kenneth. Turn Noba. Turn Kanatha. Turn Kanawat. And a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working my way through the places found in Numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.